coaching question is the, the what's going to be most impactful. I think often as science, it can be, well, it's got to be cutting edge. It's got to be impactful, but that doesn't necessarily mean new and shiny. It means actually, what is the coach's question? What is the challenge they're facing right now? And is what you're doing actually answering that? Or not answering it, but perhaps, you know, bringing more information to the table yeah, that's yeah. going to yeah. shape that, that decision. Well, a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Stephen and I'm delighted that you've joined us today. I'm a performance scientist by trade, having spent my career working with some of the best elite athletes in the world and developing teams in the pursuit of high performance. And the idea behind this podcast is to lift back the curtain a little and explore the principles, the complexities and the subtleties of performance so that we can better understand this thing that drives us to reach for more, for more achievement and for the richer experience of climbing higher. And helping me explore some of these concepts are people who've achieved, been the driving force behind performance and some who've researched aspects of performance in real depth. So this week's podcast guest is Gareth Sanford. So Gareth is only just starting his postdoctoral studies. And so in many ways, you could say that he is at the start of his career, having just wrapped up his PhD in New Zealand. But he certainly has some insights to share. Now, I've known Gareth for just short of a decade and, and have tracked his path as he's carved out a niche in high performance. Yes, this story is one of studying hard and working with coaches and athletes. But the reason I wanted to talk to Gareth is that he has demonstrated enormous persistence in finding the opportunities. He's taken a leap of faith at times. I really wanted to get into that. Um, but interestingly, Gareth is engaged in a project where he set out to work with some of the best running coaches and athletes in the world. Not only did he have to clock up the air miles, but what he developed was an extraordinary skill for creating buy-in in an incredibly short space of time with some of the most discerning, hard-nosed coaches and athletes in the world. And I was keen to find out about what he's learned. Gareth, great to see you. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Uh, so we're at the Elite Athlete Centre and Hotel overlooking the track in Loughborough. That was probably when we met, wasn't it, Loughborough, I think? Yeah, it's actually uh, 10 years since since I was a fresher. Was that right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of an anniversary almost. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember you very clearly, very distinctly, of you just politely, persistently hassling. <laughs> just inquiring another question right from the off yeah I yeah curious mind to learn and you know I found um when I first attended a workshop held by the the EIS that oh, yeah. it was just information and application of science that I I just hadn't seen to that degree from from my course and it was like all right I just need to understand that get in a room with those people and really you know dig a bit deeper yeah, well, I remember it's often the case you get people knocking on the door and saying, oh, how do I get to this level? Or I'd really love to be mm. in a position of working with these super shiny elite athletes. But um, I'd often give the same advice to the same people, different people, and 
very few would act on it, but you were, you were different. You got, you got busy and you knocked on a lot of doors. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I think the, the thing that really started it for me was when I went on placement and, um, you know, that was with, with Nick Broad and he was just inspirational. You know, he was a guy who he believed elite sport was around the relentless pursuit of better in everything every day. And, you know, if the work we gave him wasn't 10 out of 10, that wasn't, that wasn't enough. And, um, you know, at the time Chelsea had been very successful. They just come off the double and it was all about how do we, how do we take this to the next level? How do we keep improving? Even though we've, we've already had some success and I guess that created in me a curiosity and, uh, a desire to just try and go and find some, some answers and keep learning more about that and then how it applied to different sports. So that's, that's an amazing placement you would have had. What was that in a sandwich year or something you, in your, during your studies? So at, at the time, Chelsea had a link with, with Loughborough. And when I went to the training ground for an interview, um, you know, if I hadn't have got that role, I was adamant that that was, I needed to do that and take a leave of absence and make that happen. Right. Um, because it was just a different level of exposure to a performance environment and, you know, you can get bits and th- pieces alongside your course, and those those are useful. But to be fully embedded like that um, is a different different game. Yeah. Okay. So the late great Nick Broad, a uh, mm. real loss in the science of performance there, working in football, but um, but he was a real, real voice of reason, wasn't he? I mean, there, there's so much dogma and stiff culture around many sports. And, and Nick was, was rallying and developing yeah. uh, a new level and campaigning quietly, but assertively for a better way forward. Yeah. And, you know, be, becoming a real voice in that performance mm. team at the club. Um, you know, so skills like negotiation and things you were just observing from, from him that, mm. you know, when you're in a conversation with a medical director and Carlo Ancelotti and, you know, like that, that's a lot to take in. And, um, sure, it was the deep end, but an incredible exposure to what that level of performance meant, you know, and it's all about winning the next game. And if you don't win, the consequences of that on the environment, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, for sure, you know, that was one of the things that really kick started my, my drive and intention to work in performance because that idea of, continuous improvement even though we're doing well how do we keep pushing those boundaries um kind of fed my my curiosity right so you've gone down to chelsea football club training ground had an interview come out of there sounding as though you think regardless of whether i get this or not this is what i want to do you've seen the environment and the setup and the kind of people that are operating that way but then also you've got uh, a mentor type figure in Nick Broad that that is is showing the, the kind of level you need to work at the bar mm. is set high um, and so almost vicarious learning from him but also instructing and developing you yeah I mean I, I would say you know a topic you've been in, involved in is the letter to the 15,000 mm. you know and I remember back in 2012 when you lectured our, our undergraduate class and that year obviously Olympic year but I think there were two sports physiology jobs advertised that year. Yeah. yeah right. Two two jobs. So this this whole pursuit of a career in sports physiology for me, I think of as a you know, it's a needle in a haystack mm. that you that you're pursuing. Mm. And um 
that was something I was always aware of very early on, I think, in my time here at Loughborough. Um, and I think that's because there's performance around you. Yeah. You know, national governing bodies and, and even, you know, high-performing high student athletes mm. um, that I was always aware of, well, where's the opportunity? And so I think um, it's really important to deal in that reality of it is a needle in a haystack. Um, and the earlier you can realize that if, if you're really serious about pursuing a career in the industry, the, the better you can, you can equip yourself. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's a reality of performance sport, but it's also yeah. a reality of, of any industry that requires meticulous standards. Um, sure. that, that you have to operate to those standards. You have to deliver a technical excellence, but you also have to deliver the craft and the, uh, the team working skills that go alongside that, that, all aspects of our own professional and personal performance go up high mm. and therefore it's competitive. It's going to be competitive in those industries where those things matter. Okay, so that's interesting about your own development around knocking on doors, creating opportunities. So Chelsea placement, that was really pivotal by the sounds of it. But um, and, and now studying and undertaking your PhD in middle distance running out of um, the New Zealand setup. It'd be interesting to hear about that, but... What, any any kind of reflections on the the bit between your your pivotal sort of foundational studies to accelerating into real depth? Sure, I think you know I you know Nick Nick sort of lit, lit me up around performance, mm. and uh, I came back and it changed the way I thought about research. You know, everything was about how does that apply, or you know something comes up in a lecture about sports medicine about a particular injury, and you're immediately drawing on oh I remember that athlete who had this and yes. then how does that apply okay and then almost trying to feed that back to someone that you remember had that that issue yeah um and so it, it almost just accelerated the you know it developed my problem solving I think around right, okay. like all right here, here's the thing let's let's try and fix it but also um I wanted to continue working with athletes um you know, I wanted to continue the momentum of that. And I was very fortunate that Tom, Tom Crick was um, looking for an intern, actually in strength conditioning. Mm. And the first thing Tom said to me when I um, went down the track was, before you do anything in the weight room or we, we talk about that, I actually want you to do some coaching because it's really, really critical mm. for you to understand the role of the coach and do that for a little while, which was fantastic. You know, um, often I think disciplines can fall into trouble when they're not that familiar with the role of the coach yeah. and they can't see how that fits into the context of the coach's plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was invaluable and that, that was voluntary, but then led into other opportunities. And, you know, that's probably a theme that we'll see a few times, I think, in this, this conversation is it, it started with doing that for free, turning up, mm. showing up, doing a good job, having great conversations that then builds into something. Yeah, um, so that, that was... So do, um, can you just give me a couple of specifics sure. there about, um, okay, so Tom advising you of, of absorbing yeah. some of the environment from a coach's perspective. Mm. What, did, what did doing coaching add to your locker? I think an awareness of a lot of the interpersonal stuff, you know, as a, you know, I specialized in physiology as an undergraduate and, um, 
you know there aren't soft skills taught to physiologists on on a, on a course yeah. um but actually in the job now that's the that's the thing that enables me to to, to use the physiology i know mm-hmm. um and so that that coaching piece um really opened that up i think um you're dealing with different personalities all the time in a coaching role that maybe you don't um I think the perception perhaps of for young practitioners I'm going to be working with athletes but actually you're working with the coach yeah. and so that's a different position as well you're not necessarily the one interfacing with some of you know what athletes have got going on in their lives mm. so much um, so it just yeah I guess broadened my lens on yeah. all the considerations the coach has of which physiology is one yeah absolutely it's an empathy of the client's sure. needs Without, a client doesn't seem like it's the right word but it's the person that you're attending to mm. as opposed to just thinking that you're connecting with the whole um, set that's right and sort of develop that you know zoom in zoom out right okay piece of um okay well here's what the answer might be at a cellular level a physiology level yeah. but actually there's this is the context mm. um yeah. so really started to build the awareness of that um I then sort of went straight into the masters in physiology, um, did a placement in the lab with, with Rona Pierce, which mm. was fantastic for hands-on like applied servicing physiology, mm-hmm. which again, that, you know, some of the skills often as a physiologist, unfortunately you maybe, um, judged by how well you can take a blood lactate yeah, sample yeah, and, yeah. And, and so on. So but it's, I, a, it's an easy way to make you look really bad at your job. <laughs> totally, totally. If you give someone a really bruised ear, like that's not yeah. great. Um, so that that technical side really helped. And, you know, I when I finished my master's, I thought, you know, I felt quite ready to move into a role. And yeah. unfortunately, that's that didn't work out. You know, I came second on on a couple of occasions to positions. Right. Um, and that was incredibly frustrating to me um, at the time. And um, I didn't I didn't have a job to go to. I continued to do some work for, for Tom. Um, but I actually ended up uh, staying on a mate's floor who was doing a PhD in environmental physiology here um, at Loughborough. And... Um, I remember one day he kind of said to me, you know, you've done some great stuff, but actually you've, you've only been in the UK and predominantly a lot of it's been out of Loughborough. And whilst that's good, yeah, that's only one perspective and way of looking at the world. And he said, you know, if you're aspiring to really work with the world's best, they really deserve world leading practitioners. And so you're going to have to have done some stuff that, is of that nature yeah. in order to get buy-in from those people and really do that. And, you know, at the time when you're like, you, you know, you've got a couple of knockbacks, that's not necessarily what you want to hear, but actually that was the most important thing to hear and be, right. and be told. And, um, yeah, I, I went away and, uh, you know, three, three internships down, I guess I, there was a, an opportunity to go out to India and, uh, I went out there for three months to rural India to work in a tribal community Mm. um, where English was the third language. So all the, uh, the national language of India is Hindi and in each of the states have their own state language. 
Um, so I was coaching track and field um, to athletes that don't really speak English. Yeah. Um, I was learning Aria, which was the local language, um, and really just learning names of anatomy so that I could cue and lots of demonstration yeah. um, and did that for three months and it, it was incredible. Um, so how did you make that opportunity? There's a lot in there that okay. you got knocked down a couple of times or mm. rejected from roles. You didn't get those. Yeah. Um, you ha- you've had some, somebody give you a bit of a pep talk whilst you're literally on the floor um, <laughs> and then you've taken an opportunity. How did you get that uh, position? Well, I think um, I've just always had a curiosity of like how, what, like what can I control? Mm. You know, what I can control how I think about a situation. You know, and I'm definitely better at that now than I than I was then. Yeah. Um, and so I just started searching. Like, okay, people often talk about you know it's um, it's a tough environment, high performance. You know, it's it's intense, and you you know I remember. David Stead here, who's been a great mentor, kind of said, you know, one of the biggest things that, that Chelsea will be looking for will be how do people manage the environment? How do people operate in that high-performance environment? And so I looked at it and thought, well, hey, I was in rural India, you know, people are earning $2 a day. I'm surrounded by uh, wild animals, you know, chased to breakfast by monkeys, that kind of thing. Um a whole load of stresses, a complex environment, but actually when you then go, okay, well, the high performance environment is tough. Well, actually your life's not at stake. Yeah. You know, uh, which actually, if you get bitten by a, you know, a diseased monkey, then, you know, you might, might have some issues, you know, so it, it, it really challenged me in a different way, but actually that, that being able to handle that. Okay. Handle brings, those additional pressures whilst yes. also doing your, your kind of key role, mm. um, but also sounds like you're getting perspective. Totally. Um, you, you're thinking, right, well, <laughs> I've got to get to work safely in order for me to do work. And that, That's right. And, and when, I, when I'm at work, I'm quite relieved that I'm safe. <laughs> right. And then the, wow. the the kind of communication with, you know, the tribal kids was am- amazing. You know, they demanded so much of your attention and their desire to learn English was was incredible and I remember one day you know I was teaching track and we wanted to work on you know relay transitions and we didn't have any batons so I talked to the kids about what I wanted to do Mm. and a couple of them went into the bush and they're carving out batons for the session Nice. and the same with um, you know like hurdles you know there's a kid there like carving out carpenter like amazing stuff just really, you know, making making the best of their situation, and they were so happy with with their lot and what was around them. And yeah, it gives you it gives you a perspective, yeah. um, but also that actually, you know, you don't need a whole host of resources to really make something happen. You just need a right, you know, the mindset to go and make it happen. So, how long did it take you whilst you're out in India? Three months. How long mm. did it take you to kind of get to that realization of? Most a positive, constructive mindset. Let's make the best out of this. Um, flipping this round from I'm doing an amazing career that's actually quite a luxurious thing um, in an environment that's actually quite threatening. How long did it take you to get to that that kind of realization, or did it happen after? The, uh, well, I think event? the um, 
the initial arrival in there, like the first two weeks, is just such a shock if you haven't been sort of to that part of the world. Yeah. Um, you get that in any Asian country, the hustle bustle, like life is just different. And I think once you get, you get through that, you then start to embrace what it, what it is. And it's almost, you know, life is simple because, you know, you're thinking about where you're going to get your next clean bottle of water from. Um, you know, things that we just, we just take for granted, but it just, yeah, it, it was still developing those communication skills with within a totally different population. That, mm. um, sounds yeah. like, sounds like you were almost adding a philosophy, a life philosophy, as opposed to just problem solving in a, in a challenging developing world. You've got to be really clear about why you want to pursue a career in the industry. And I think it has to be, it has to be bigger than, you know, I like the status of working with a team or anything like that. It has to be bigger than that because you have to yeah. be doing it for yourself, you know? I mean, the, the, surrounding yourself with like-minded people, but that can support each other and say, go on, you can do it, but also challenge and say, look, come on, um, you need to, you need to step up. It's, it's critical, but I often wonder whether if, I think this probably applies to, to any developmental experience, but it needs to be something that's quite moving and, uh, and grounding in, and appreciating what you have and the quality and, and the, the life that you have. Um, I, I often used to think that actually one of the best things developing performance scientists would have been to send them to a children's ward, um, or mm. to, to send them to a, an environment where, you know, there is genuine trauma. Um, because I remember when I was at the Olympic Medical Center, one of the, the founding members there was a guy called Dr. Mark Harris, um, late Dr. Mark Harris, um, who founded the, the center with Craig Sharp, again, who's passed away recently. And, uh, and I was stressing about not being able to pair a heart rate monitor with a transmitter once. And, uh, it was a Friday. I can remember specifically it was a Friday because he would have lung cancer clinic on a Friday. And, uh, and I said, anyway, tell me about your day. What are you up to? And he said, oh, I'm probably going to have to tell five people that they're not going to make it. And maybe five people that they're going to make it today. And I said, I don't know how you do that. And he said, no, I don't. And I have to detach myself from it. Mm. in order to, so that I don't get um, weighed down by it. And uh, <laughs> just putting the heart rate monitor down and just thinking, yeah, I'm a lucky boy if I can't measure heart rate today. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I'm a fortunate, fortunate person that that's something that uh, really genuinely does not matter today. Yeah. So I'm here and there like acclimatizing your skills, but also recalibrating what you're doing versus... You know, getting a, a broader perspective on what you're actually, um, what, what you're working on. Yeah. Interesting. So, so now I'm, I'm keen to start to unpack the kind of research work that you're, um, you're exploring, uh, through your PhD, uh, this concept of, of the determinants of anaerobic, uh, speed reserve, um, in context of middle distance running. Can we drill down as to sort of what you've, what you've learned? The, the technical know-how of, of what you can take away from the, the research work and apply to improved distance running? Sure. I think, you know, one of the big things I'd say is when when I arrived out in New Zealand, um, it's a young system. So you compare, you know, I think it was EIS established in, I think, 2003? Is that 2001? 2001, 2001, okay. 
So a high performance sport in New Zealand in its current format was established in 2011. So much younger system than than the British system, you know, four and a half million population in New Zealand. Um, so young system doing some great things. They hadn't had a physiologist for athletics for two years. And uh, my role was to come in and lead the physiology support for the endurance athletes um, and then sort of frame or, or figure out a research question to really um, help push that, that level onwards. My starting point was looking at, well, what do we know? Mm. You know, we've got coaches who maybe haven't worked with a physiologist for a period of time. Um, we need to get on the same page around how we how we look at look at performance to then start framing a question yeah so for me it was uh, the obvious point to start at was well let's get really clear about what was happening in the racing because a lot of us you know daniel Kahneman talks about what we see is all there is you know or we develop narratives about what we think happens when sometimes the reality is different or it was right when that that opinion was formed but it evolves yeah and um, I had a feeling that there'd been some some transitions in how some of the middle distance races were being run. And, um, you know, a typical for a 1500 would be a, a slow couple of first laps in a championship and then yeah. a, a, a fast last lap. In the men's 800, there was a very clear difference, largely influenced by David Radisha, mm. where actually he was going out incredibly fast you know, going out um, 11 seconds down the back straight of the first lap. Mm. And a lot of the research in middle distance running is based on aerobic measures. Um, and I'm thinking 11 seconds and then you're running another 600. Like this is a guy who's bringing more than just a strong aerobic system to the table yeah. um, and raise the question for um, us and our coaches of, well, how fast is enough? You know, if we're in a nation with a small population, if we find someone, like we've got to get it right with them because we might not have another one for 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, but how fast is enough? And when I looked at what was out there, there wasn't really any reference point for what that might be. Now, of course, there's, you know, the space beyond VO2 max, not to get too heavy, heavy on this, but that area is really challenging to quantify from a metabolic standpoint. Yeah, is very important. Kind of an elephant in the room, actually, I think, for, for science, because that's where middle distance race pace sits. Yeah. But we thought, okay, well, a step forward would be to better understand the typical range these types of athletes are bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. That's part one. Another thing I started doing was looking at, okay, well, we're looking at this 800, which is very challenging because it's in the aerobic anaerobic middle ground. Um, I need to hear from coaches about their challenges in this space to really shape up like what are the what are the big rocks here you know what do we even need to uncover and so um i just started talking to coaches from new zealand and then just broadened it out all over all over the world and once you've spoken to 15 20 coaches about mm. their experiences and their challenges of the 800 meters common themes come out and you go okay these are the real issues and I knew that doing a PhD in performance, I didn't want it to be something that was like, oh, so what? You know, like there's lots of research out there 
that's interesting, but so what? Mm. You know, I really wanted it to be, okay, this is a real question and a real need for coaches. That's going to drive how we tackle this approach. And the, the speed reserve piece showed massive differences in our sort of pilot data between types of runners. And we thought, that's interesting. This might be a tool to help us unlock this complexity and understand it a bit better. So you, you explored performance as opposed to looking at physiology and trying to impose it on an event. You're looking at the, the delivery of fast middle distance running um, and you're noticing a couple of key aspects of that that raise an eyebrow and make you think, are we, are we thinking it from it from this point of view, like a, a Rhodesia 11 second 100 metres? Um, what were the themes that you're picking up from coaches about distance running, distance training? Well, I think, you know, that one of the elements was the testing, which kind of matched what I'd been seeing and feeling about, you know, the, the testing battery often for an 800 meter runner actually looked very similar to a marathon runner. Yeah. And coaches going, well, this is, that doesn't make any sense. But actually that's what as physiology we, we were or have been um, guilty of in the past of just rolling that out. Yeah. And um, at what point in that process are we reflecting on that and going, okay, well, why are we doing that? And is that reflective of what's actually happening? I think what gets lost sometimes is that, you know, there's a massive power of observation and what is happening. And some of the greatest science guys like Darwin, you know, he didn't start with, Hey, I've got tools to measure everything. He went out collecting, observing, bringing it back. What do we think? And asking good questions about what's happening. Mm. And I think, you know, a great, a great quote from, uh, I can't remember his name, a Canadian sports scientist. He talks about in the world of performance, if you're just evidence based, then you're following, mm. you know, and how, how are you going to create a competitive advantage if, if what you're doing is, is all that you can see, yeah, okay. you know, and, and, and so I think you, you have to absolutely have scientific principles that underpin that. But ultimately the most important thing is the performance. And because the 800 is challenging in terms of that aerobic anaerobic middle ground and really is, as science, this, this anaerobic metabolism piece is, is still very challenging it's often not pursued by too many researchers. So actually the real experts in that area are the coaches who are working in that every day. Yeah. And so that's where the real questions are because they're seeing it. They're experiencing it. The coaching question is the, the what's going to be most impactful. I think often as science, it can be, well, it's got to be cutting edge. It's got to be impactful, but that doesn't necessarily mean new and shiny. It means actually, what is the coach's question? What is the challenge they're facing right now? And is what you're doing actually answering that or not answering it, but perhaps, you know, bringing more information to the table yeah, that's yeah, going to yeah. shape that, that decision. So, okay. Um, the next question will be about kind of who you looked at the, 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 the mission that you went on, but, but in the meantime, what were the, what are the kind of key observations? So anaerobic speed reserve i mean as soon as you started working on that i thought yeah that's going to make sense that's going to fit and that's going to help understand the determinants of middle distance running what's the what's the kind of conclusion can i get to the sure the, the key observation yeah of course so um 
in a in an elite population. So we class this as runners who uh, run under one forty seven five for an eight hundred meters, and yep. our cohort, I think the fastest was one forty four. Um, so to give people an idea that, that all those athletes are in the top 200 in the world yeah. and that 144 person is in the top 10 in the world um, in the in 2017, uh, we found that the fastest athletes had a strong relationship with a faster peak speed. And that also was uh, with a faster anaerobic speed reserve as a function of having that larger right. peak speed. But interestingly... Around that 147.5 kind of landmark, there was a cluster of athletes who had a whole diverse range of, of sprint speed. Okay. So perhaps, and we, we need to dig deeper into our emerging talent pool of data to, to confirm this, but perhaps you can get to a certain level by being strong okay. aerobically. Right. But actually to push on yeah. and to really be competitive at top level, you need to have both characteristics. Right. And then there's a whole um, diversity across a spectrum of, of what that uh, might look like. Mm. Um, but our first paper that just came out in the um, International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance has those kind of benchmark data. So now coaches can have that, measure their athlete, yeah. look at that, get a feel for where that, that might sit. So it's starting a discussion. Right. By no means does anaerobic speed reserve explain anything, everything. But it is a step forward. Okay. So and, peak and, speed as a really easy measure yeah. to, to record could offer you information about what's holding back or limiting your athlete or differentiating and, and showing what the strength is. That's right. And I think I think an important question here is, you know, how much are you leaving on the table? Yeah. And yeah, you and you and you only percent of the and you and <laughs> you only truly know that answer if you've got the right determinants on the table to begin with and you're yeah. looking at the whole picture mm. and to this point there's maybe one you know people know it's a thing but it's not really evolved and that's what we're hoping to do is you know just bring it into the conversation absolutely it's a game of both aerobic anaerobic neuromuscular mechanical absolutely but let's really investigate that together because often, you know, there's, there's papers looking at running economy and VO2 max in middle distance runners. And then there's others that are looking at sprint speed and jump performance, but they're in different papers. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. both these things matter. Yeah. You know, and um, speed reserve is a very easy measure. It gives you a snapshot, a first layer of yeah, nice. what an athlete looks like. That doesn't mean you can't go deeper or shouldn't go deeper. You know, it depends on your question. But yeah. as, a, as an initial snapshot of how you wired, I think it's a, a helpful starting point for going, hey, we've got this complexity. That was a massive question. Hey, we've got this complexity. How do we better understand this? All right. So I'm interested. That's, so that's fascinating. So anaerobic speed reserve, it sounds like it's got a, a place to, um, in the physiology understanding of middle distance running. It sounds like an upgrade on maximal accumulated oxygen deficit, which is too many steps away from probably being useful or repeatable in that sense. But I'm interested to, to leap then to how you went about this. So um, talk to me about the, the the breakaway from kind of New Zealand. So you've got a sort of limited population of, of, uh, of athletes in the country or that they're outside. So yeah, tell me so about for, how you started off on this So for mission. the audience, probably... Um, 
you know, fair, fair to say one of the challenges for, you know, New Zealand, and they're not alone in this, you know, Australia have this too, other nations have this too, is, you know, the draw of the NCAA and the, the American collegiate system. And it's a fantastic system and opportunity for athletes. Um, but New Zealand currently has, I think, 73 athletes in the NCAA from track and field, and 81% of those are distance runners. So that creates a challenge for that junior to senior transition of how do you support that? Mm. If you're a Kiwi athlete based in New Zealand past about March, track and field for you is in Europe and North America. Yeah. So then you're not based in New Zealand either. So, you know, I arrived in New Zealand 18 months before the Rio Olympics. And uh, we, we know, you know, you know yourself from Olympic cycles mm. that, that's not a time where you start implementing new no. things. Um, so, you know, your, your first six months a year is building relationships, understanding the culture, um, helping them advance what they're trying to do in terms of performance. And your PhD is one piece that's not going to deliver a Rio medal, right? But um, is, a, is a piece that they're interested in, but there are other competing priorities too. Um, so we got, got to a place of, well, how you know how are we gonna how are we gonna do this? Mm. Um, we felt that the speed reserve measure was the way to go, and could be something that was practical. Um, I then started, I guess, looking at well, how can I get this done? Could we start collaborating with people? You know, I'd been talking to coaches about, hey, we're finding this this issue. Mm. We have these questions and, well, maybe they might want to engage with that. That actually very quickly for me became much bigger than just a PhD and became a, hey, we've got a whole community of coaches here where, honestly, have we really served them with information that's useful? Hmm. Um, we've got to do something about this. So that sparked the idea that, okay, we could connect with other coaches around the world that might have an, a similar interest. Mm. But um, can I just ask you about that? Uh, was it the initial engagement, the email that you sent? Was it the uh, turn of phrase that you used? Uh, was it some data? What I would say is, you know, like Simon Sinek talk, talks about, you know, you want to do business with people who believe what you believe. Mm. And then we could talk about times and those things. And there was a contextual understanding and a mutual, um, hey, do you know what? Like together, we we might be able to figure this out more than, hey, both of us on our, on our own, you know? And, you know, a lot of coaches are in that situation, you know, that they're maybe an island and they, they don't necessarily have a network to talk yeah, okay. and, and share those ideas with people they feel that do under, un, understand it. And so... Um, so what yeah. happened then? What happened next? What happened next? It was like, okay, that's amazing. Maybe there's other coaches here that might be interested in the same thing. And so I started exploring wider and people I knew that... So, you know, in... in um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, he talks about connectors and mavens, people who pass and share information and have networks. And, you know, there's a thing about creating momentum. And so I honestly, I got, I got a world map and some post-it notes 
And I sat there and went, okay, well, if I went to this place, who might be the people, the squads that maybe I don't know yet, Yeah. but actually they love distance running. They might be interested. This is a shared question that actually, you know, like in the end, I think over 80 coaches I Skyped with, Skyped or met with, or, you know, this is a community of people where there's a real question here. Mm. And, um, can we can we build together some type of plan? And uh, we we just started exploring what was possible. You know, I've been fortunate as well. You know, one of my other internships was um, at Altis in the US with Coach Dan Paff and yeah. Stu McMillan. And wow, that was a two month lesson in what is high performance, incredible minds, incredible questions. You know, and I owe a lot to to people like that. Mm. Um, but you can see that through some of those early internships experiences there are actually people who are interested in these kind of questions and so you had these people that various stages have been part of the journey and we we kept in touch we're actually now like all right well let's do this together and and that's what it felt like it didn't feel like a phd project it felt like we're really trying to solve a problem here so you start you start emailing some connections, some warm leads, people that you know or you've got relationships with, or That's then right. starting to bridge to, to further people you haven't met before. Um, and then it sounds like you're a, you're living out of a suitcase and you're flying places. What was the kind of a t- the tack and approach? What were the sort of lessons learned from engaging with this community, with this common cause and this common problem, but in completely different environments, spread all around the world? Well, I think there's a there's a few things, you know, like when you're, it's not about, it was never about, um, I have to do this, you, you, you yeah. know, I have to come and I have to, I have to test your athletes and do this. Of course, that was something that was offered and I was going to take every chance that was there to do that. But I had varying levels of what a worthwhile visit would be. Coaches have so much information, so much experience of doing it that a coffee with a, a coach is valuable. Most coaches like coffee. Hmm. You know, that that's it for coffee. <laughs> that that that's right. Um, you know, so kind of started to that. The next level might be, hey, well, maybe after coffee, may I, may I come and observe your session? Yeah. Um, you know, with a continuum up to okay, well, come and, yeah, sure, we'll be part of it. Come and test our athletes. Um, and I think that's really important because often, you know, like I talked about that that study earlier with the, the researcher and wanting to use the athlete population and yeah. it was all about this is what it this is what it's going to be and this is what you're going to do. Um, that's, that's, not a, uh, that's not a two-way street. That's not a... Um, a rapport building, uh, hey, a mutual thing where we're both getting something important out of the exchange. So what, what went into the initial discussion, the coffee chat? What, what went into that? Um, so I usually started with, hey, we were looking at this, this area of middle distance going, you know, well, the Africans are really dominating in the distance space. You know, other nations are coming to the party. We're really interested in learning about the last lap kick. That's part one and, and surging in racing. Part two is, you know, having spoken to 
you know, 80 or so coaches around the world, it keeps coming out that there's this complexity of speed types, endurance types. Um, what are your experiences of that? Okay. Almost every coach has thought about that challenge of the African dominance. Mm. Almost every coach has thought about, hey, like, how do we do more on that last lap? Those things really matter. And I think, you know, again, with questions like there's a really big difference between something that's interesting as a, as a question and something that actually matters, yeah. something that's going to differentiate an outcome. And again, like how much time do we invest in that question mm. that actually is going to be meaningful to the people that you, you want to engage, want to work with? Yeah. What I like about that is that you've, you're, you've identified the problem. You've, you're, you're 99% sure that they're going to get it. They're going to understand it and appreciate that because that's been bothering them at night. But equally, you're not necessarily presenting the solution or the, the thing that you want to work on. You're posing it as a question. Can I, can I hear your thoughts in a respectful, um, and, and supportive way of, of recognizing their expertise? Yeah. Because I mean, hey, look, like they've got way more experience than me in the 800. Yeah. And, with that complexity, there's always going to be something that you go, oh, I haven't thought about that. Well, that's an interesting way to tackle that. But you're also, you're, first of all, you're listening, which is a respectful exercise in itself of, of considering what the other person thinks first and foremost, as well as actually gathering information, literally gathering ideas from people. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, for me, it was all about like, how do we get to the bottom of this? Mm. You know, and we're, we're far from at the bottom of this, but you know, how can it, it really gave clarity about what's important, what's not. Okay. And so for the writing of the PhD, like I kind of want to, you know, we're skipping ahead a bit here, but when I came back, it was like, all right, well, we could write about loads of stuff here, <laughs> but here are the really critical things. So, yeah, you know, yeah. We've, we've posted, okay, well, how fast is fast enough? You know, okay. what typical benchmarks of peak speed, anaerobic speed reserve are we seeing in elite populations? Yeah. That's out there. Um, Anything that you, th- you thought was important, but actually the coaching community or the data actually said, no, it's probably not as important as we, used, we might have thought. I really tried to not go in with, hey, I think this is really important. Yeah. And tried to learn from that experience they had. Okay to go, no, these are the really important things, you know, and let that guide my judgment. That doesn't mean that we could answer everything, but it meant you were very targeted towards what the really critical fires were, if you, if you, if you yeah. like. So so coffee is the, is the common accelerator, the problem on the table. Coffee or um, Skype, you know. Coffee or Skype, <laughs> yeah. Um, which then potentially led to, can I observe? So I further, uh, again, respecting their environment as opposed to jumping to intervene. Um, and only from that point then can you then almost wait for the invitation to, and we'd love you to give us. Well, feedback. there are varying degrees, Steve, you know, some, some coaches were very open straight away and were like, we will totally be part of this come in. Yeah. Um, there were, you know, there were some where like I'd only had one Skype with the coach and he'd said to me, I'm not a science guy. And I was like, that's totally fine. 
Um, but yeah, like come and come and see us. And um, the day I arrived at that place, um, he sent me what his training week looked like. And in terms of the scientific study design, it wasn't quite what I what I needed. Mm. But we managed to kind of negotiate that. Yeah. But that that kind of visit was you turn up day one in the environment, you kind of meet everybody. Day two, you're testing. That's fast, day, though. That's oh, fast. Oh, absolutely. Day, day three, I'm processing all the data. Day four, I gave a report and I gave a report to every coach that I worked with and we yeah. had a little debrief about what that meant. Okay. Um, so there's a feedback loop and closing that off rather than um, a bit like your example study we just want to poke and prod them and we're not necessarily going to give you anything useful. It's so important. Anyway. People have to be getting something out of it. There has to be value. Mm. If they're if they're being so generous as to have me in to to do do the study, like they have to be getting something from that. And I presume that there's a kick on from that, because if you then are asking them, Can you refer me elsewhere, they're gonna they're gonna be campaigners for you, you're gonna be championing your idea and cause. And I was very unfortunate that again that thing of getting busy creating momentum mm. that that happened yeah right. so i remember there was one time i was um i was in america at the time um i'd set up the website where you know people that i didn't know could contact me through the website um and uh i had a call with uh, the dutch coach and she said um hey we'd be really interested in being part of this and I'm in Flagstaff at the moment yeah. and I've just talked to the, one of the Canadian coaches and they said, you're coming next week and like, they, we want to be on board. And I'm going, this is, you know, that's, okay. that's amazing. Okay. So you it's, know. it's cross referrals in that sense. So, okay. Let's, let's but I think, but I think importantly, the openness of like, I can't speak more highly of the openness of coaches to just discuss and explore mm. the idea that's because at the end of the day, like oh, that was a big risk for them to bring some guy into an environment, works for another nation. Um, so I couldn't speak more highly of all of the coaches I worked with because that's a massive ask. When I step back and look at it, mm. that's a massive ask. Yeah, and, and also counter to what you might expect is in the sense that it's it's a competitive environment. You know, you, countries are competing against each other and and but yet there's a community there, community spirit that that actually they're all in this together. Um, so it sounds like you've you've been around the world a couple of times. So give us the stats on on uh, how far you've been, how many people you've connected with, and then um, let's draw out a couple of these key principles and lessons learned from engaging with, uh, with so many people and being effective in that way. Sure. So looking at the total distance covered, um, it's sixty eight thousand kilometers, wow. which is. Um, <laughs> You know, a couple of, uh, nearly a couple of times around the, around the world with the circumference of the world is 40,000. They must like you at the airport. <laughs> yeah. Airports, ferries, Ubers, um, <laughs> all sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Greyhound buses. Right. Yeah. Um, and how many, how many groups, how many coaches and athletes have you yeah. engaged with? So I think it's 33, um, different high performance centers, um, ranging from collegiate athletes and coaches to professional setups to federation groups. Um, and those are across eight different countries. Wow. Um, 
over 80 coaches were involved. And that's ranging from someone that I went and did testing to with to someone who I had a Skype call with, okay. you know, and each of those inputs were valuable yeah. in, you know, widening, widening the lens of perspective around this area. So 188 athletes, wow. um, which, yeah, I think is possibly the biggest middle distance study that's been yeah. um, conducted in, 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 in that elite population. Okay. So huge number, uh, massive connection around the world. Um, what would be your kind of key lessons that you could share about engaging with a client coach in that sense so that you can draw something out, but they can get, add some, have some value from it. Mm. Really make sure the question is about something that's important to the other person. Yeah. You know, um, Simon Sinek talks about start with why, mm. what are the why of people you're trying to target, you know, really unpack and understand that because the project can't just be about you. If you're trying to do something like this, um, I think that's, that's really vital. Really understand people's context and situation. Okay. You know, coaches have a lot of pressures, you know, from athletes on contracts, you know, delivering results. And you just have to be so aware of that. And, and do you have a tip about that one specifically? Is that just being mindful of, or being open-minded as you go in and observant of the different environments as opposed to expecting it to be a certain way? Or is that studying it? whilst you're in it I think I think I think it's a real time thing okay of um, you know when you go into an environment picking up what are the constraints on this person right and um, that was vital because it was different everywhere you went mm. you know from an American college to a pro group to a European nation versus an Australian group you know and um, just being respectful of that like everyone, like everyone has stuff going on that we don't even, we have no idea about, you know, and, um, you can't go in with it all being about you because it, because it's not about you. Yeah. Um, and they're being part of it because they felt that it was a question that was important to them or they saw something in what we were doing that was, Hey, I want to be part of that too. Okay. And that was the thing that sort of, uh, brought us together and so that that's that's what it was about it was never it, it it was it was about that of which one of the things i offered was the study okay right but hey do you know what if you're happy to sit down with me and have a coffee and just talk shop about 800 meter running well i'm going to enjoy that too and i'm going to learn something too okay um so so coffee rapport it being about the problem it being about their their thoughts about being about them not you not not about your your particular study um sounds like some fantastic take-homes to to reflect on from what sounds like an incredible journey literally (laughs) literally a journey in exploring this idea and um and zooming around the world in order to do so yeah and honestly um the stuff that's coming out now is just the beginning because we've mm. we've got a lot of information that has had to be parked while I write up the PhD on a very sort of specific angle on yeah on things. So you know, my hope is that it's um, 
the start of as a community, us trying to really get at the questions coaches have in a, in a practical way. You've got to write some sort of book. You've got to write some sort of uh, reflection and log as to the sort of environments you've experienced over time. I know you've, you're processing data and ready to defend your PhD, but uh, that type of that type of experience is so valuable because you've connected with so many different people and so few people have done that on such a magnitude. Um, amazing reflections. Thank you so much, Gareth. And hat tip to your supervisors for making this happen. That's been Yeah, that's I mean, a real, a real credit to the New Zealand system for giving me the flexibility to yeah. go and just make it happen, you know, yeah. and... Um, yeah, we've hopefully got some great outputs. And so if people want to tune in and find out a bit more about you, where should they, where should they, we should direct them to? Yeah, I mean, Twitter's probably the, the best place, Gareth underscore Sandford, yeah. S-A-N-D-F-O-R-D. Um, yeah, and you can go from there. Fantastic. Cheers, Gareth. Thanks, Steve. You can follow Gareth on Twitter at Gareth underscore Sandford and look at his website speedreserve.net. You can also follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. And you can follow some of our wider work on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube and subscribe through the website. And if you'd like to leave us a, a review on iTunes, then we would be wonderfully appreciative.